Hello and welcome to the final planned live stream of 2023. I am so honored to be joining you live from the global headquarters of the world's best capitalized bank headquartered in the world's best capitalized country. And look, it's been a remarkable year and a lot of that focus has been on things like the US economy, its strength, and the US inflation. And we're going to talk about a lot of subjects today. Uh, we're going to start with the public portion of our program for those of you joining us on LinkedIn. And with our cavalcade of stars, I wanted to go straight to Leslie. Uh, and Leslie, I want you to uh, tell us a little bit more about what the Fed is uh, thinking this week. You know, there's a lot of central bank action probably this week, but the Fed is the most important. It is. I mean, when you, when good, if you just go to the first slide, and, and I want to put sort of our outlook in there as well, is that, you know, our expectation is that both growth and inflation are going to slow into 2024, and this will eventually lead to policy easing. You know, we, and we think that for a few factors. Number one is that we had CPI out today, which was pretty much on consensus. And as we've seen, and you can see this sort of like on the left-hand chart, we've had CPI falling, particularly due to rents, but we still have wages that are, to say, are a little bit too high that, that would above the Fed's comfort level. And then we look at things such as, you know, jobs and employment. You know, job growth has been gently slowing. And what I mean by that is if we look at last week's non-prime payroll report, that was 199,000, 166,000 when we take out um, the, the, the UAW strikers and a 3.7% unemployment, which was actually the lowest that we've seen in four years. There's strength there, but it's also very concentrated. A lot of this, a lot of these payroll gains are in things like, you know, healthcare, leisure, government. And so, but we still have a 3.7% unemployment rate. But if you look on the other side, if you want us to look at things such as the JOLTS number, that's come in, you know, fairly soft. It's been trending lower. So we, I would say that the labor market is softening. And then when we think about, you know, going over that longer term, our expectation is that that growth, particularly from what we saw in the third quarter, will, will trend lower and probably start to go you know, what we would consider below trend over the coming quarters, just as the consumer's excess savings starts to deplete, as we have savings, the savings rate starts to go higher. And, you know, Mark, what you said, which is really important, is that what's going to be a caveat and really add some volatility to the marketplace is going to be this tug of war between what the market is saying the Fed is going to do and what the Fed will message. And we have tomorrow the Fed, uh, you know, start the, the Fed meeting when, you know, our expectation is they're going to be on hold. But the market is still pricing in this, this easing of about 115 basis points in 2024 and a 47% chance that it starts in March, 100% chance that it starts in May. Now, the, you know, Chair Powell tried to job out a little bit about two weeks ago this sort of you know, rally in the treasury market, loosening of financial conditions. And while he reiterated more than likely a pause, he really is trying to emphasize this higher for longer over the next several months. Now, the market hasn't really reacted to a statement you know, from a week or two weeks ago. We'll have to see what tomorrow brings. But more than likely, in our opinion, from the data that we've seen right now, that you know, the Fed will stay on hold. Uh, but it's going to be higher for longer. And pricing in these easing in March is a little bit premature in our view. Thanks, Leslie. And as always, the uh, most fun part of the show for us is when we get to take uh, questions. And we, we hope we'll have some time for that. Um, 
Leslie, uh, just continuing on, I was talking with some clients last night, uh, and one of the concerns is, you know, the the U.S. Uh, has a lot of debt and it's issuing a lot of new debt. What about, uh, you know, we saw maybe a couple of the auctions we were watching very closely, but what about uh, the Treasury market absorbing this bond issuance next year? Is this something that's going to impact policy? I mean, you speak about auction. We happen to have a 30-year auction later on this afternoon. So I think that'll be fairly telling, particularly in front of the Fed. But, you know, in, in general, look, supply is going to go higher. It's, it's going to be probably on average 23% higher than what we saw in 2023. But, you know, I like to, to sort of break it up between drivers of interest rates and what I call a passenger, right? And if we if we look at sort of like that left-hand chart, you know, when we've had this kind of large supply in the past, it's normally been with slower growth, right? Because growth and inflation will trump supply when it comes to the actual direction of interest rates. So historically, we've had, when we've had large supply, we've had a slower growth, so yields come down. Now we're seeing, particularly in the third quarter, when we saw this, you know, well above trend growth, and the supply issuance, as we all are well aware, October was a very difficult month. Yields went up to 501, and we can see this on the right-hand chart, and the term, what we call the term premium. And just from a layman perspective, a term premium is simply what an investor is compensated for by locking up your money for 10 years versus, say, taking a one-year treasury and rolling it 10 times. So because of this supply issue, in October, we saw a really large rise in term premium, really large rise in interest rates. Lo and behold, as we shift to November and we see some slowing in growth numbers, not, not you know, anything that's a point of concern, but growth, you know, we do see some slower numbers, yields come down, term premium comes down. So when we think about how this supply, we definitely want to watch this as a you know, component in terms of its impact to quantitative tightening and its impact in terms of other market uh, and related instruments. But overall, when we think about the actual um, you know, the sort of tailwind to interest rates, growth and inflation are going to come first. Uh, the supply will come second. And if, in fact, growth does start to slow, as our expectation, you know, you know, permits, households will be involved, foreign investors will be involved. But if we have well above trend growth and supply, then more, more than likely yields are going to rise. I think, uh, thank you, Leslie. And this is a good place to end the public portion of the program so we can come back and start getting into the investments. So thank you and all the best for the new year. All right, Leslie, let's uh, let's keep going and think about when you think about what you said about the Fed policy, where does that uh, create the best uh, investment opportunities for U.S. dollars, uh, U.S. dollar investors? Yeah, I mean, look, when we think about our current path to the Fed, and again, I mean, I know, you know, people are probably sick of hearing data dependence or we'll see. But unfortunately, that's the current path that we're on because we do have this bit, bit of tug of war going on. But given our expectation that growth will slow and inflation will slow and more than likely the Fed will start to ease at around that third quarter by about 75 basis points, you know, what we look for in terms of investing is really, you know, sort of locking in um, carry and going into what we consider longer interest rate embedded sectors. So on the left-hand side, what we show, and we've, we've shown this before about, you know, what instruments perform well after a Fed pause. Now, one of the things that we know is that, look, when we think about cash and cash alternatives, and, and you know, investors should always have a component of cash or cash alternatives for the cash flow needs, right? 
But when we think about 2023 and the inversion of the yield curve, listen, cash earned a seat at the table. There's no question. But going forward, given the fact that we do believe that interest rates will come down to around that three and a half percent by the end of the year, not necessarily in a straight line. You know, what we want to look for are those instruments that have a little bit of higher interest rate component embedded within them that really are, are able to benefit from that price appreciation. And we also want to look for those sectors that are a higher quality, simply where we are um, in the credit cycle and the business cycle. And again, although cash is great for those who needs cash flow needs, the history of sort of the, the, the projection of the future of cash is going to go back to what the history was. I mean, cash is going to be used for things like capital preservation, liquidity, and yield. But yield is more than likely going to be the third component. So what we want to do is start to extend out a little bit, go into those, those sectors that are high quality, that have a little bit more interest rate risk to them. They're going to benefit from both carry and price appreciation going forward, such as things like investment grade corporates are a great example. And it's and one of the things we wanna think about as well is that given how well <clears throat> some of the higher credit embedded sectors have done this year, you know, our expectation really for risk assets as a whole going into 2024, you're more than likely not gonna see a huge amount of spread compression. You know, we're starting off heading into 24 at levels in terms of spreads, both for higher quality and for those with more credit embedded um, at fairly tight levels. So really the key driver of total return in 24 is going to be from carry and price appreciation. Yeah, thanks. And of course, uh, you know, if you follow that strategy and things were to worsen uh, even more, uh, you know, you, you could get even more price appreciation. So that, that, you know, that works in a base case and in a, in a bear case. So, uh, you know, thinking about hedges that that's powerful as well. Um, now I want to turn to Themis and, uh, Themis, you know, it's gets dark early here, uh, in what I would call Northern Europe there in some of the client events we've been doing. Uh, it's been a little dark on the view of investing in Europe at this time. But you know, there's a, there's always opportunities out there. So for uh, investors here in Europe, what uh, what are you looking at? Thanks, Mark. Uh, absolutely. Um, just sort of maybe to set the scene a little bit to uh, talk a little bit about the macro environment because that obviously has uh, bearing on how we look at investments. If I look back to 2023, it's clearly been a tough year for Europe. So we had we started with energy crisis, then we had inflation very high, uh, wages didn't keep up with inflation. We had negative wage uh, increases um, and rising interest rates. So if I look at the economy this year, most probably grow by less than half a percent. And as we close the year, there's still a possibility that could we could even dip into a shallow recession. But looking forward things are looking brighter because inflation is already down significantly. We're talking less than 2.5% inflation uh, and will continue to trend down into the end of 2024. Wage increases, we're talking maybe 4 to 5%. So we've got to start getting real wage increases, which means that uh, the consumer will start spending again to support the economy. And the ECB at some stage will start cutting interest rates, maybe around mid-year, maybe a little bit earlier, that again is going to be a tailwind for the economy and also some of the sectors that have been suffering like manufacturing that has been really in recession for quite a while. So this is the background, tough environment 23, start of 24, but as we go through the year, things should start looking brighter. In terms of where we see uh, uh, investment opportunities, 
is not dissimilar to what Leslie was saying. It's actually a year that we've seen decent returns across different asset classes, bonds uh, and equities. And uh, obviously, as the attractiveness of cash will be coming down as the ECB uh, cuts rates, then investors need to think about deploying money now into some of these other investment opportunities. Just starting with the, the uh, on the credit side, on the bond side, uh, we do like quality. We like investment grade and, uh, and, uh, and high grade. Investment grade, we most probably have a slight preference because there you get uh, the, the spread plus the underlying. Uh, and with the uh, um, balance sheets of corporates being very strong, we don't expect widening of the spreads. And with low volatility and some uh, selection of the right bonds, you could get 6-7% uh, out of bonds, uh, an asset class that has very low volatility. If I move to equities, Eurozone equities, we don't expect a huge amount of upside in terms of earnings. We're looking at 3 to 4% earnings growth in 2024-25. But the market is trading at very attractive multiples. We're talking less than 12 times multiple when long-term average is more like 13 and a half. <clears throat> so we do have the potential of re-rating of the Eurozone equities. You could potentially, in a good case, get more than 10% uh, 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 return, low double-digit return out of Eurozone equities. Within that, quality, uh, the, a bit like what Leslie was saying earlier on, uh, quality equities tend to do very well uh, in this environment and also will protect you if the economic outlook Tends to be uh, tends out to be a little bit tougher, uh, and also specific to Europe. Uh, going back to what I said about the consumer having more money to spend, uh, we do like consumer sectors, both uh, stables and consumer discretionary. All right, thanks, Themis. Now uh, let's turn to Switzerland and Danny. Danny, uh, we all know Switzerland is uh, often seen as a safe haven, but where should people be investing in Switzerland as, as we come into the new year? Yeah, thanks, Mark. So uh, absolutely. I also think that uh, many Swiss franc asset classes have this kind of nimbus of a safe heaven. I mean, look at the Swiss equity market. The Swiss market index has a very defensive stack with the com composition. Uh, over the last 30 years or so, it has a much lower volatility than, for instance, Euro stocks but still managed to outperform its European peer on a currency-adjusted basis. Uh, and the Swiss market index also offers you a nice dividend yield right now, 3.3%, which is roughly 40% higher than its long-term average. So you do find quite a few of these very solid quality income stocks that we are <clears throat> like the current market environment. So we're not just advising our clients here in Switzerland to invest into balanced, well-diversified portfolios with quality stocks and bonds, but we also advise them to generate some extra returns, for instance, by uh, investing in the trading range in the Swiss franc, in the currency. So you should see a next slide here on the screen, which shows you US dollar Swiss franc and Euro Swiss franc. You see that on the left-hand side, you see dollar Swiss franc, which held quite firmly between 90 and 102 over the last roughly 10 years well, as uh, the fair value, chasing power parity, which is the gray line here on the, on the slide, has come down quite a bit because we had higher inflation in the US, much higher inflation than in Switzerland. We think that a new lower range is starting to form right now between roughly 85 and 92. 
So it makes sense to play this range, set up structure where you generate some extra return on this. Same for your Swiss franc on the right-hand side. You see Swiss is trading very low now, right now, has appreciated a lot over the last couple of weeks uh, at the lower end of what we would consider to be the new range here. And the Swiss National Bank actually starts to become a bit more nervous as we have moved below 95 and we will follow the S&B very closely next Thursday, what they will have to say about the currency. They could uh, send some first signals that they might start to intervene if Euro Swiss would go significantly below 95. So playing the range here makes a lot of sense. So in the last uh, word, perhaps on the third Swiss franc asset class that we currently like, that's Swiss real estate. We do actually like Swiss real estate funds in this current market environment. So the last two years, we've seen quite a steep drop in real estate funds as rates have shot up. And the premium, the so-called ARGO on Swiss real estate funds has, has come down from 50% to 15% on average. So clearly below their long-term average. So we particularly like real estate funds with a focus on residential property because uh, the Swiss residential property market is actually fundamentally very well uh, supported. We have a shortage in housing. We have strong immigration. So look at uh, Swiss real estate funds if you want to have a safe heaven, long duration, real asset in your portfolio. I make a stop here and turn it back to you, Mark. All right, thanks. And uh, we've got some questions coming in. So let's let's go back uh, to the U to uh, uh, the U.S. and uh, I think I think this question's about the U.S., but maybe it's more broadly. Uh, Leslie, uh, as inflation falls, what principles policy on sorry policy unemployment? I think this is about like how is the Fed going to manage its dual mandate? That's how I'm going to interpret that question. Yeah, that's 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 a great question, and you know, price stability and full employment um, is going is that's absolutely the Fed's, Fed's dual mandate, and and one of the um, criterion that we're seeing, and it's been really discussed quite a bit particularly as we see this heightened tug of war between what the market's pricing in and what the Fed is messaging, is the ability to have inflation come down, but without necessarily having a large headwind to employment or growth. And, and I think that one of the, what the issue has been, particularly as we see some of these softer numbers and this volatility, is that you know, there are a lot of market participants that believe that such a feat of saying, okay, after you've just hiked you know, an historically, historical amount of time up to say 5.33 effective funds rate and inflation comes down, what are these lags effects going to be on the overall economy, meaning the consumer and employment? And are you do you really have the ability to maneuver such, okay, inflation's coming down and we have a soft landing? And I think that as inflation does come down, they will, they will obviously, growth and their full employment is, is another big part of what they're going to look at. But I do believe that once inflation starts to really trend down, they can start to sort of take a step back in terms of even the hawkish rhetoric that they've been setting on, assuming that you know the labor market isn't overly tight. And as I mentioned earlier, we are seeing some loosening with that. So again, the expectation will be right now is inflation's first, but they're not going to forget about that growth side. All right. Thank you. And uh, I had a question for uh, Danny, and it's about inflation in Switzerland. Uh, today, we got a notice that our rent is going up in the spring and our electricity prices are supposed to go up 20 percent. Uh, you know, so as people get these notices here in Switzerland, uh, what what is that? Is that changing our view on Swiss inflation? 
Now, Swiss inflation has uh, had a top of 3.5% roughly, while other, you know, the Eurozone had close to 11%, so much lower than, than elsewhere. And it has come down quite steeply. Uh, we're now at 1.4% currently. But we know that these lag effect from rents will push up inflation again a bit over the winter months into spring. We thought that there might be a risk that it's going above 2% again, but uh, with the last reading of inflation, which was lower than expected, we think we will not even see 2% anymore. So that should worry the SMB too much. It will go up again a bit because of rents, electricity, which is a, a lagged effect uh, due to administrative prices and, and, uh, and, and the connex between rents and the reference rate, the so-called reference rate. Well, uh, no issue here in Switzerland, I think. Okay. All right, uh, next question. Uh, I think, Leslie, for you, where should we best be positioned on the curve? Yeah, that's that's a great question, particularly with the fact that the curve has been inverted you know, for you know, 25 months or even longer. Um, given our view that you know, we're gonna, we're at a stage of a pause and the pivot will eventually come to marketplace around that third quarter of 2024, you know, that five-year part of the curve has a tendency to lead monetary policy in both directions. So when the Fed is hawkish, yields rise the most in the five-year, and when the Fed turns a little dovish, yields decline most in the five-year. Now, there's multiple ways you can get to that five-year part of the curve. You could either do just the bullet or the of the five-year, or you could do a barbell anywhere between that one to 10-year to get you to that five-year place in the curve. But really, the five-year or that belly, we think, is a sweet spot going forward. All right, thanks. We've got a, a question here on emerging markets. Maybe I'll take that one. What is the outlook for emerging market stocks and emerging market debt in 2024? So, uh, you know, I think so. We're overweight on emerging market stocks. We think that uh, earnings are going to improve. The valuations are particularly attractive when you look at them versus a market like the United States. And actually, the emerging market indices are not just commodities anymore. They involve uh, a lot more tech and, uh, and other things in there. So I think the outlook's positive. On, uh, on emerging market uh, bonds, I think we're more a little more neutral. It's more that you have to look for quality. Uh, the, the Chinese property sector is probably not something that we would be jumping in wholeheartedly yet. And so you need, you need to factor that in when you think about emerging market bonds. But one thing I would say about uh, bo both bonds and stocks in emerging markets is that if we do get a weaker dollar, uh, and you know we, we've talked about the do dollar being very strong for a lot of reasons for a long time, that could really benefit the emerging markets. So I think uh, you know hopefully the the better earnings will be the catalyst we've been looking for in emerging markets. But there are some other factors that could lead to a re-rating. All right, and let's see what else we have here for questions. Ah, Themis, this is a good one. What? are the, the largest concerns for the coming year, uh, central bank maneuvers or geopolitical risks? Thanks, Mark. I knew it was coming to me because risks and Europe tend to go together, uh, especially uh, geopolitics. Um, I have to say it's interesting because as you know, we have a, a risk radar and we're monitoring all these risks and investors often say, which one of these risks you worry the most? And I usually say the one that is not up there and in some ways, if I look at these two risks, are clearly risks. If the ECB takes longer to cut rates, 
We, uh, it, it could mean that Europe goes into recession by mid-year, maybe later on, or the recovery is not as strong. But but I, I think given where the, the inflation is, I, I may be less worried about central bank. Geopolitics, of course, are very much always a risk. And also we have to remember, we've got two wars going on, not far from here, one in Ukraine, one in Middle East. Could those escalate? Is not our base case, but it could, and that could have an impact, a significant impact on, on the economy. Uh, the way out we tend to think about it is, if you worry about that, to put it in a positive way, how can you protect yourself? And if I look at the two geopolitical risks that are close to Europe, the transmission mechanism to the economy is likely to be through a higher energy prices and higher oil prices. And this is an area that fundamentally, if we look at oil, we still see uh, fundamentally upside in the oil price and also having a position uh, in oil also could protect you if this escalate. Now, also maybe to uh, go from the wars to actual elections and everything else, it's not much happening in Europe outside the UK, but actually one set of elections that can have a material impact on Europe could be the US. Because if you end up with a different administration and you have more tariffs and maybe no more support for Ukraine, Europe might need to step, step up and spend more money, which means more fiscal burden for Europe. But that may be a story for 2025. All right. Well, uh, I can tell you, you know, one of the things that we're watching very closely is the American consumer and their and their spending, uh, because that's uh, that's probably key to the economic fortunes. And, uh, you know, one of the things we're looking at is air air traffic and the day after Thanksgiving was set a record for uh, air travelers. So when you look at risks uh, for the, from the perspective of the American consumer, I'm only saying this half jokingly as I try to end on a positive note, the uh, American consumer's biggest risk seems to be YOLO, you only live once. And they are still uh, particularly uh, middle-class and higher-end consumers still can spend our spending uh and maybe they have something there uh spending it on going to see friends and family and for all of you as you contemplate your uh, new year's resolutions maybe that's something to do spend spend more time with loved ones uh we're going to sign off here and we look forward to getting together with you again in the new year thank you UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliate, UBS. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient and is published for informational purposes only. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients globally, UBS AG and its subsidiaries offer both investment advisory services and brokerage services. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. In the USA, UBS Financial Services Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG and a member of FINRA SIPC. For information, please visit our website at UBS.com forward slash working with us. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at UBS.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.